BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello. In 1532, Atahulpa became a ruler of the great Inca Empire that was based high in the Andes of South America and spread along the Pacific coast for over 1,500 miles. He had an army of 80,000 warriors controlling 10 million people and a complex system of roads, irrigation canals, terraced fields and temples developed by Andean people over thousands of years. Within a year, this elaborate empire had collapsed. The conquistadores captured and garroted Atahualpa in 1533, and a civilization that had seemed so strong was then destroyed by civil war, religious conversion and smallpox. With me to discuss the rise and fall of the Inca are Frank Meddens, visiting scholar at the University of Reading, Helen Cowie, senior lecturer in history at the University of York, and Bill Siller, senior lecturer at the Institute of Archaeology at University College London. Bill Zillow, what was the extent of the Inca Empire at its peak? It was stretching from Argentina and Chile up through Bolivia and Peru, going through Ecuador to the boundaries of Colombia. Around 10 million people in a very large area stretching from the Pacific coast over towards the Amazon. And across the Andes? And across the Andes, across the Andean mountains. um, How long had it been... This is accumulation of different peoples. It wasn't one. Can you tell us how it came about? Well, it's a it's a short process in terms of the expansion of the empire, but it's a very long process in terms of the development of Andean culture, and uh, particularly its development of agriculture, um, use of of camelids, and its development of complex systems of architecture of social organisation. Well, give us an idea of the length of the short and the length of the long. <laughs> um, well, the, the, the peopling of the High Andes starts around 10,000 um, BC. That's long. That's long. Uh, but the um, occupation um, of building terraces and canal systems, that's been going for about 3,000 years or so before the Inca. Um, there is a previous empire, the Wari Empire, that's stretching from around 600 to 1000 AD, covering some of the area that the Inca were in, and the Inca inherit some of that structure, but that has collapsed completely in the 300 or so years before the Inca emerge. So the Inca emerge at this place we now call Cusco, uh, and can you tell us how and when they emerged and how they got to be in control? Well, they... They emerge out of the collapse of that empire, the development of, to start with, small groups within the Cusco Valley who are also building terraces and canal systems and small settlements. This is in Peru. This is up in the high Andes. So Cusco is about 3,400 metres above sea level. Um, And the Inca are one small ethnic group within that area but they managed to coalesce a number of different ethnic groups and they work together to construct some of the buildings and the terror systems and they use a combination of conquest and alliance and marriage organisations in order to draw together the smaller ethnic groups in their immediate area and that takes around two or three hundred years prior to the process of really large expansion of empire. When they're in charge, when the uh, Spanish arrive, they've been in charge for proper charge to the whole lot for about 150 years, something like that? Yes, well, they, they, they've been in complete control of the Cusco area for, um, you know, the area, of, if you like, from Cusco to Lake Titicaca for about 150 years. Some of that expansion was still slightly going on at the time that the Spanish arrived. Um, so heading into Ecuador, they've only really overtaken bits of Ecuador and going into the very boundaries of Colombia in the 50 or so years, 70, 80 years before the Spanish have arrived. But they've still got this huge empire. So what, yes. you, you gave all sorts of other countries as well being part of the Inca Empire. Yes. So they um, expand through a continual process of conquer, um, sometimes using their military might, the fear of that, and therefore um, people choosing to make alliances with them, and indeed many ethnic groups feeling that they will get advantages out of that process. Thank you very much. Helen... Alan Curry, their base was Cusco is over 3,000 metres above sea level. How did they found, find enough? How did they get to eat there? 
Yes, yeah, so it's very challenging and inhospitable terrain on the face of it. But what the Incas managed to do, and again, as Bill has indicated, a lot of this was building on what previous civilizations had done in the Andes, is they exploit different ecological niches. Um, so because you've got mountainous terrain, you have lots of different altitudes, and that means lots of different microclimates. So, for example, maize will grow really well in the river valleys and crops like chilli and cotton as well. Um, higher up, they would grow things like potato um, and quinoa. And then in the high Puna, over about 3,500 metres, they would pasture llamas and alpacas. So they have what's... Um, it's this kind of more vertical um, sense of, of living, what's known as sort of archipelago settlement, so that they can exploit these different niches. Um, and they also use terracing as well, again, to take advantage of these microclimates. Um, so one of the best examples of this would be at Morai, which is just north of Cuthco. Um, and you've got there these concentric circles um, made of stone uh, with different um, kind of platforms going upwards. And because there's a big temperature differential between the bottom and the top, you can grow different crops um, within those. Um, the other thing that the Incas do is, of course, they trade with different regions. And because the empire is so vast, as Bill indicated, that means they have access to crops that grow at lower altitudes, um, such as the coca leaf, for example. Um, and also they develop various systems for preserving food. Um, for potatoes instance, are a good example. Potatoes are a very good example. Can you tell us about that? Indeed. So they devised this way... Well previous civilizations have devised this way and they take it up of freeze-drying potatoes essentially um, so the potato freezes overnight you squeeze out the water and you repeat this process until it gets smaller and drier um, and it will then last for about um, 10 years and you can then rehydrate it so it's kind of like a, a form of sort of instant mashed potato that they um, create um, but another example would be um, meat as well. They dry meat um, from, from llamas and alpacas to form a substance called charqui, which is where we get the word beef jerky from. It's the same process. And that, again, was used, for example, for rations for the army. So this is a way of ensuring when there are droughts and floods, which, which there often are, this is a region affected by the El Nino phenomenon, among other things. They have these, these kind of stores in place. What about the terracing? You mentioned that mm. the, it's, it's, the engineering was ingenious, wasn't it? It was, Not yeah. only with the terracing. Can you give us some more examples, please? Yes. Um, I mean, their road system is very impressive, but this stretched across the empire, and it involved things like suspension bridges, um, which didn't exist in Europe at the time, um, made, made from, from rope, um, local reeds and things like that. Um, and, of course, in their cities as well, they develop a way of building which doesn't use mortar but you have bricks that kind of perfectly um, tessellate with, with one another and obviously we have really well-known um, sites such as Machu Picchu um, which are iconic and mirror elements of the landscape too so they have some what very do you mean by that? Um, so for example there's a rock in Machu Picchu um, in the actual site which mirrors the mountain behind it it's been cut to the same shape which has sort of spiritual connotations as well they thought that mountains looked down on them. Look, look, I didn't look down on them, looked after them, as it were. They looked up to mountains who looked down on them and were part of their god system. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, they had a spiritual significance. They were kind of shrines often as well. Did their spiritual life come into their agricultural cultivation? Absolutely. So a lot of the Inca festivals and the ceremonies that they carry out were closely related to the agricultural calendar. Um, often that entailed sacrificing different number of llamas, for example, um, and different coloured llamas at different stages of the year to propitiate different gods. They had no horses. They didn't have horses. They'd never seen a horse, which was massively significant mm -hmm. later on. Uh, and they didn't have the wheel. So that meant... That Everything was transported on foot mm. or on the back of the not terrifically strong llamas. Mm. Absolutely. Um, but llamas were a major source of transport for them. Um, obviously, llamas will only go so far before, if you, if you overload them, they'll sit down and refuse to move. So, so there were limitations. Um, but they were nonetheless able to transport goods all the way across the Andes. They were able to act as um, porterage for the military as well. So they were very important in that sense. Thank you very much. Frank Maddens, what stories did the Inca themselves tell about their origin? Uh, there's a, a number of different ones. It's, it's quite fun in a sense. All, all Inca stories are variations on a theme, so you get different angles. There is not a single 
story. And the most well-known ones talk about four brothers and four sisters coming out of uh, three caves in an area called Pajaritambo, which is about 30 kilometres south of Cusco. There is a a number of events that take place. Uh, uh, One of the things that happens is that one of the the brothers, uh, Ayarcachi, is uh, particularly unpleasant. He has a a sling and he uh, wields this frequently causing mountains to fall and and valleys to form and the family gets a bit upset about this and they tempt him back into one of the caves and and wall him in. Wall him in? Yes, so he's supposedly still there. And then uh, the others move on and finally enter into the valley of, of Cusco where Manco Inca or uh, Manco Capac uh, views the valley and asks uh, one of his other brothers to fly over uh, so he turns into a bird and flies over into the uh, valley lands at at Cusco and turns into a a stone, uh, a boundary marker Funnily enough, you can still see this part of that particular myth uh, reenacted at uh, at Machu Picchu, where you've got the the Temple of the Condor, and you've got this carved condor which has uh, wings made out of the uh, the natural rock behind them. So it's it's as if you've got this this bird landing and turning into stone at that particular. Uh, location. Manco uh, Capac, he, he uh, sinks a uh, golden rod into the ground, uh, tests whether it's agriculturally productive, and uh, establishes his, uh, his kingdom at, at Cusco. What connection did the Inca feel with the uh, landscape around them? Oh, the, the landscape is, is seen as an animated structure. So uh, you have uh, rivers running through it that they metaphorically see as carrying blood and sperm. Uh, the, the mountains. Whose blood and whose sperm? Uh, of the, the the earth mother, if you will. Um, but uh, all the, the the various aspects within the landscape, rocks, mountains, are individually seen as. Um, living beings as uh, as human beings are living so a rock has a, an, an animated element to it that, that gives it life and uh, means you can negotiate with it and you need to feed it uh, so as to ensure that uh, the landscape uh, provides uh, you know, enough Productive support and and uh, structure to uh, your your life and your society. Thank you, Bill Sutherland. What were the what were the what, what was their religion? Can you tell us something about that? Perhaps religion suggests a single structure. There is a lot of different um, ideas. So, as Frank is saying, um, places had identities and names, and they were a very important part of how people engaged. The um, ancestors were very important, but they blur because people's ancestry becomes part of the landscape, that stones and places become part of the kinship group. And therefore, when people refer to their deep ancestry, they start referring to places rather than what we would see as people. Um, and th- well, Let's stay with the ancestors for a minute. They mummify them, don't they? And they bring them out as celebrations in their mummified state. Well, they couldn't hardly bring them out in any other way. Anyway, they bring them out in their mummified state and they feed them and they take messages from them and they act act as if they had been reincarnated. Yes. Well, so um, most people in the Andes were at this time putting their dead into places where they would dry out. So they went into high burial towers where they would dry in the wind or onto caves and things like that. But particularly the Inca elite, they... dried their mummies and then brought them out for processions and they were taken to different places 
after death to have festivals with them. They were fed, they were given drink, and they were seen to be alive. So people would interpret their actions, and the dead mummies still controlled some aspects. They owned aspects of the land, and they were also involved in the investiture of the next Inca, for instance. So the dead continued to be active within society. I asked you about religion, but can I put that to one side for a second and ask you, how did this comparatively small tribe succeed in taking over so much territory and so many other tribes? Was there any key thing? There were several key things, I think. One of them is that they drew upon aspects of the prior society that many had shared. So they've got the agricultural systems, they've begun to develop some of the same um, aspects of communication and things and, and recording of information. But they were particularly good at alliance making um, and warfare. And I think that the significant thing that we get from some of the um, sort of mytho history that the Spanish are recording is that they... Um, respond in some ways to other people attacking them by being better at attacking back. So there's a myth of the of a chanka of a neighbouring group that come and attack them, and that they draw together and 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 are able to fight them and successfully beat them off. And indeed, we have military aspects of that. They used clubs to hit people and things like that. That was very successful. But they then combined that with negotiating power. They created marriage alliances and um, they insisted upon either people joining them or being decimated and through that you mean decimated you mean wiped out wiped out uh, particularly the elite of the of the people that they were going against being being wiped out and that allowed them to continually expand out and draw, draw in the different groups that they were involved with helen can i come back to a question that i asked uh, bill he isn't that he didn't answer it he went on to say much many other more interesting things so what about the sun and the moon so the sun and moon were important deities um, for the Incas, and particularly the sun, um, which was was worshipped on a, a wide scale. It always seemed quite sensible to me in ancient religions that they should that they should have a particular regard for the sun. Anyway, it, never mind. It, it does make sense to to worship something you can see, um, and, and the Incas. Warms you, mm, and so the Incas' attitudes towards the precious metals were also mm. connected to that. So gold was seen as being the sweat of the sun and silver was supposed to be the tears of the moon. And there was also this idea of duality in Inca society, so you'd have kind of male and female deities complementing one another, so that's what you've got going on there as well. Um, so the sun was a primary object that the Incas would make sacrifices to, usually of llamas. Um, a white llama was sacrificed to the sun god, Inti, every day in Cusco, so you needed a lot of llamas Was there any human that. sacrifice at all? There was some, yes. Um, nothing, Who would be sacrificed? Um, so there was nothing on the scale that we see with the Aztecs, in which it was mainly rival warriors who were sacrificed. With the Incas, it was often children, um, because they were seen as purer, effectively. Um, and they would often be sacrificed when one Inca died and another took over. Um, Inca king, I mean, not one Inca person. Yes, the Inca, the Inca ruler, um, who was also called the Inca, just to make that more confusing. Right. Okay. Um, so when the, the Inca emperor died, they would sacrifice children. Um, and typically that meant taking the children often to the top of a mountain or a volcano, again, sacred places, and um, sacrificing them there. They were often given things like chicha beer, um, which is a beer made from maize, um, and then they would often be either strangled or sometimes sort of hit on the, the back of the head and sacrificed. Um, and sometimes this would happen in times of sort of epidemics or natural catastrophes as well. And I think the idea behind this was that you were sacrificing something you really cared for and that that was why it was children and it could be about 200 perhaps sacrificed on the the death of an emperor so quite large numbers though we haven't found that many um inca, inca mummies to, to corroborate that cusco therefore um frank frank madden's is the center of a enormous <laughs> enormous empire how was it connected with that empire uh, it was the biggest empire in the southern hemisphere wasn't it so, there, there was a, a massive uh, road uh, network <coughs> which uh, uh, was fundamental to uh, linking the the, the the periphery with with the center. Uh, and was this held together by messengers? Uh, yes, you you have a, a structure where you have chesky runners who uh, uh, would be based in a number of way stations along this this road uh, system. 
they would run um, maybe four and a half kilometers and then be replaced by the next person. Uh, story goes that uh, uh, fresh fish would come to uh, the the Inca from the coast within a day. Messages from Cusco to um, Ecuador would take about a week. Um, one assumes that uh, uh, the message was was carried in in a form of a, a quipu, uh, which is this this uh, string form of, of of writing where you've got a uh, um, a cord which has strings hanging off it with knots, uh, and the messenger would uh, would take this and and run and uh, have a pututu, a, a conch shell trumpet, which he would announce his arrival for the next way station uh, where the next uh, runner would be ready to take it further along. It seems to work very efficiently, doesn't it? It did until the Spaniards came. Yeah. <laughs> a huge in- investiture in terms of this, the road but also way stations, tambos that were along the system that where runners would be waiting to make this work. So it, it required a consistent effort to put this in place. And presumably those storehouses with potatoes 10 years old would be play their part as well. Yes, yeah, so along the, the road system and in many different areas, there were both small storage structures in some areas, but also in some areas, vast banks of them. So in places like Cochabamba, um, in Cusco itself, in, in um, Wanuko, there were very large banks of 500 or so of these structures where materials could be stored. Did all roads lead to and from Cusco? They did in the end, so to speak, that part of what was being inherited was a road system that pre-existed this, that, that, that was there from the Wari Empire and possibly even before it, but the Inca added to that and developed it with all roads being connected to Cusco. And indeed, Cusco is seen as the centre of what one name that the Inca gave to their empire is Tawantinsuyu, the four parts together, or the four contributions together. Um, and, the, um, and Cusco is seen as the very centre of that where the, the four parts are united. And what do we have any idea what Cusco was, as it were, like? Yes. Um, in some ways, there are bits of Cusco that still survive today of the Inca construction. So there are some of the amazingly well-fitting stone um, um, walls of major Inca structures that are there to be seen. Um, it has been adapted, and as much as the original structure of Cusco had step structures and canals running through it which is no longer there in the modern structure but you can still see some of the original design where um, the central temple Coricancha, the golden enclosure which was particularly the focus of um, both the sun and the moon but of other uh, also where the Inca ancestors were held sits at the point where two rivers come together and that is the sort of no that is where the 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 the, the bird stops where um um uh, Manco Capac planted his golden rod and then from there it goes up to a large plaza which was the gathering place for large numbers of people that were brought in to participate in Inca ceremonies and then above that Saxuman which was a very large area which became a fortress when the Spanish were there but was probably mainly a ceremonial area and storage area. What was the, how did the ruler rule and what did the people have to do? Uh the ruler ruled through connections. So there were um, um, leaders of provinces, there were military leaders, there were um, um, religious um, and ritual organisation leaders. There was um, so there were, they partly did so through that. They had, to some extent, personal connections with some of the um, leaders of the ethnic groups that they had connected, and it was through reciprocity that they ruled. There was an agreement of providing both to individual workers for the state, but also to the um, um, elites of the groups that they had conquered, um, some um, materials, things like textiles and stuff like that, and in return, the provision of labour. So it was l- through creating reciprocal Arrangements and one of the ways that these get sealed is through offering drinks to each other, so that you create a contract. A drinks of made out of maize, the maize product. mainly. Yeah. Yes. You want to come in? Uh, yeah. The ruler also uh, mediates with uh, the sacred, and that is fundamentally seen as as an an, an aspect aspect that justifies his uh, leadership. So role. he's a god. Yes. Yes. Um, Helen, they had gold and silver, uh, which uh, led to their undoing. Did, they, did the Inca themselves think that was tremendously valuable? 
Yes, but not in the same way as the Spaniards. So for the Spanish, gold and silver have monetary value as a currency. Um, For the Incas, they have value as a status symbol. So the Incas value the brilliance and the colour of gold and silver. And as I've mentioned, they had these spiritual connotations as well. Um, So they they did appreciate these these substances, um, but not in the same way. And indeed, we know that they valued highly decorative articles too. Um, So when they conquered some of the coastal societies like the Chimu, who had really um, skilled goldsmiths, they relocated some of these people to Cusco so they could produce gold and silver artefacts for the Incas. Of course, unfortunately, after the conquest, the Spanish melted a lot of these items down, so we don't have half as many as, as we would like, but, but some still survive in, in museums. Yeah. Um, what uh, strength... We talked about the ancestors. Do you think we give people listeners enough uh, enough value about the place the ancestors played? I think it's it's quite hard for us, us to understand the extent to which the Incas valued their ancestors because it's in some ways alien to our culture, the idea of taking your mummified ancestor out and feeding him beer or coca leaves. But it was very important. And this idea of reciprocity that Bill mentioned, that extended to the dead. So the idea was that if you venerated your ancestors, they would ensure that your agriculture was successful, that the empire um, would, would succeed. So it was highly important, but it was something the Spanish didn't appreciate. Frank, the, they seem to have been very well organised, but perhaps it was brutally organised, as I understand it, when they had a, a tribe or a group that were becoming rebellious and challenging, they moved a lot of them somewhere else among people who were very pliant and solved it, perhaps, we hope, that way. Can you give us some insight into that there? Yes, you have a, a whole series of movements that, that uh, are part of controlling the empire by controlling people. Part of it is, uh, as, you, as you say, moving uh, complacent people to areas where you've got rebellious ones and rebellious ones to areas where you know that uh, other people are going to be there to uh, keep an eye on them. But you've also got a taxation system, which means that you move people uh, to carry out work for you, uh, and tax is paid by labour, and people will therefore uh, become part of your army and, and for a year or two travel with the army, and people will move to uh, build agricultural terraces for a number of years, uh, but they will retain their rights within their home community. Uh, So uh, eventually they will return. Sorry, you want to say something? Well, I need to add to some extent to what Frank is saying, and as much as this was drawing on an earlier system, so that when Helen mentioned Archipelago, the idea is that within a ethnic group, you would have places that you sent workers to manage fields, to, to grow cocoa, whatever, outside your area. That is what the, the, the Inca are to some extent developing. They then manipulate that to make it a, a form of control by using this idea of moving sort of disruptive people to new areas. They are developing something that previously exists, but they're expanding it to an empire level. So we're looking at... Now, can we move on, I'm afraid, now? Thank <laughs> if you don't mind. So we're looking at a very solid setup which happens at the time that Pizarro arrives uh, to be in a state of civil war, but it had just about resolved that. It was still a powerful, settled, controlling empire. Um, how did they respond to Pizarro when he turned up with his 200 men and their horses? Well, I think that the, the, one of the sort of um, insecurities within the empire is the process of succession. Um, because you, it wasn't just the eldest son, so to speak, of the emperor who became the next emperor. It was somebody who was powerful and could command sufficient support. Um, that led to a insecurity at the process of an emperor dying. So if Wanakapak died of smallpox, which he may have done, it would have created this insecurity as to who should be the next leader. Um, therefore, there was a disruptive process going on between particularly two potential successors, Atahualpa and Huascar. The civil war that had been going on meant that when the Spanish arrive, the place is in a, play, a, a, a process of disruption. What, when, they set first eye, when they set eyes first on the Spanish, what were their thoughts? What do we know of what they thought about them? 
about what the Inca thought. Exactly. Uh, we do slightly know that, in as much as there's a record written by Tito Cusi, who was a, 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 a nephew of the uh, of the Inca of Atahualpa, um, who writes about the fact that they are. Um, Impressed by the horses, they're impressed by the metal armor. What do you mean by impressed? I mean terrified. They wanted them. They what? wanted them. I think that the, the, the expression is that they would they would quite like, happy, like like to have killed off the Spanish, but kept their horses. <laughs> mm. Well, go on. You just we started with the horses. What? But also the, the horses were clad in iron a bit, and now it's through the bits in the thing they seem to be eating iron. So they're very strange. And the Spanish themselves tried to um, present that. They they were trying to make the horses into an even more powerful thing. So they were claiming that the uh, um, horses may have eaten iron and metal. But they were white, these men, and bearded. Yes. And these, this was strange too, wasn't it? It was strange. I mean, the degree to which it was massively strange, I think, is difficult to know because the Inca were themselves encountering very different-looking people as they expanded into such a large yeah. empire. But they were unusual, absolutely. Helen... You want to come in here. So we've got this confrontation before anything much happens. Mm. The Spanish have come in the wake of what was called Stout Cortez. You couldn't get away with that nowadays. Uh, and In the Aztecs. And they'd come for gold and silver. Yeah. Uh, and they met this massive... Uh, they, must have, they must have been very impressed by it. They didn't see 80,000 troops all at once, but they, they must have heard of this. Mm. And there were 200 of them, guns, horses, white, and so on. Um why did they find the Inca so vulnerable to what was a slaughter and what was a complete, uh, a complete victory and beyond that? I mean, partly it was to do with the weaponry that they had and the horses, of course, which were completely alien to the Incas. Um, Titu Kusi, in fact, refers to um, the horses as llamas with silver shoes, although they do quite swiftly adapt to that. I think more important are some of the, the kind of structural problems within the empire. Um, and Bill has mentioned the fact that there was a succession crisis going on, and this was a long-standing vulnerability. And, of course, Pizarro's lucky to, to stumble upon the Incas at that moment. And I think also the Incas very much underestimate the Spaniards and what they're trying to achieve. So Atahualpa, he is captured by um, Pizarro and his men in an ambush, largely because he is unarmed at this point. Um, And part of what goes on as well is he's handed a Bible which he does not understand and which he drops. And this is interpreted as him rejecting the Christian God and is a sign for the Spaniards to attack him. Well, an an excuse, we'd say. An excuse, indeed. Um, But while he's in captivity, one of his main preoccupations is what Huascar is going to do. So he orders him to be executed. So he's more concerned... his brother. His brother. He's more concerned about his brother usurping his throne than about the Spaniards. And similarly, Huascar's relatives hope to to manipulate the Spaniards to, to benefit them and to get them back into power. I think another issue is that... So it seems a sort of paralysis mm, on the Inca side. Yes. Um, also because their lead has been taken into captivity. And they did. I'm sorry, I'm, I, I don't mean to be rushing you, but didn't they think they ought to get these people, they were warriors, and chuck them out of their city and, and get on with their lives? I think they simply didn't realise how serious the Spaniards were. Right. And in Why fact, not, do you think? Because there was there were so few of them, and they didn't they seemed abnormal. They didn't seem to have the qualities that the Incas would recognise in an army, so they didn't react. And because they had lost their their leader as well, I think they weren't able to react quickly. I mean, it is worth saying that the Incas do put up resistance subsequently after the Spaniards have taken Cusco, and they do form a kind of neo-Inca state as well after the Spaniards have conquered them. So they're not immediately wiped out, and there are attempts to to respond. Frank, you want to come in? Yeah, I, th- I think the horses should not be un- underestimated because, and e- even today, when when you have civil disturbances, horses are still used to in- intimidate people on on, on foot, and uh, the 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 horses eating metal and being like a cyber being, uh, part metal, part being which may be sacred or may may be a god or maybe maybe a beast they don't know uh, the horses uh, are very effective in in this this early period uh, of, of keeping uh, the incas under control and their soldiers uh, at bay so the incas seem if i can be perhaps too uh, summarizing the incas seem rather paralyzed and and waiting to see what would happen and Ahuapa goes around on and gets put in a what is in captivity, where he's going to be 
they're going to say we want this this cell of yours filled with gold and silver before we let you go as I understand it well it's Atapualpa who yeah. orders his his people from ca- captivity to carry out certain actions and uh, I think it's it's after Atapualpa's own death that they garrote him don't they yeah that that things start to get more out of control in a sense uh, for the Spaniards for a while at least and it's Sorry, to, just to add to that, one of the things that's quite interesting is that Atahualpa is saying, take this gold from Cusco, this gold and silver. Atahualpa's base was actually in Ecuador, in Quito. He is saying, take the material from the base that is particularly associated with Huascar. Yes, it's the old capital, but he is in the process of setting up a new one. So he is, in some ways, he's not undermining his own authority through that process in the same way. What did the Spaniards make... Uh, Spanish make any attempt to understand these people uh, instead of uh, quite soon as we got uh, blowing them into oblivion. Yes, they did. I mean, they they had their own translator, Martin, who who was very important in terms of of the process of of communicating between the Quechua speaking and other languages, but particularly Quechua speaking um, Inca and the the the, the Spanish. Um, and they did make very strong attempts, I think, to understand what was going on. Indeed, the success of the Spanish is partly that they did understand quite a lot of how the Inca were working. Partly they were drawing on sort of information they already had about how the Aztec worked, which is why they chose to take the emperor and capture him, was because they'd already seen an empire that was like that, where taking a single ruler can have such devastating effect. Um, so they did bring certain understandings and of the landscape. And they then, you know, one of the things that they do quite early on is to begin to try and record Inca history and understanding in order to be able to maintain their control. But Spanish. the elephant in the room is this. The Spaniards destroyed enough of the Inca for them to take over the whole thing in Cusco, etc. How did they do that? So one of the things they try to do is to establish a puppet Inca emperor. So they get one of the half-brothers of um, Huascar and Atahualpa to rule in their stead, effectively giving some legitimacy to them. Um, the first one they choose dies, but the second Meanwhile, one... Meanwhile, the Spaniards are getting on with collecting the gold and silver. They are indeed, yes. Right, fine, OK. Um, so so they, the first um, puppet emperor they choose dies, but the second Manco Inca does survive and initially allies with the Spaniards. He's very young at the time until he eventually rebels against them and indeed besieges Cusco and Lima, which the Spanish have established on the coast before retreating to establish this kind of neo-Inca state running parallel with the Spanish Is there state. any standard battle? Um, there are several confrontations. Um, there are certainly some battles during the siege of, of Cusco and, and afterwards. When did the Spanish know they won? I mean, definitively, probably in 1572, when the very last Inca is executed to Pacamaru. Um, but that's a long time much, on from. Yeah. So that's 50 years mm. on. So I'm, I'm trying to. It, probably this is a, this is this is my it's a futile uh, expectation of mine. I'm trying to work out. They got there in 33. Mm. Now, what's happened by 35? Are the Spanish in control? Pretty much. They've seized Cusco. One of the issues is they've also fallen out amongst themselves. So the conquistadors spend a long time murdering one another. So there's two families, the Pizarros and the Almagros, who are constantly, essentially, vying for for control of of Peru, which delays consolidation of power. Have the Inca accepted that the Spanish are now in charge, Bill? Uh, I think they accept some of their role but I think one of the things that's important to say within that is what do we mean by the Spanish? We're still meaning a very small number of people. The main people that are running this are other Andean people. Mm. They are still organising the stores, they are still managing the the, the war, you know, most of the people that are being killed on both sides are indigenous people um, that are fighting on both sides, either for or against the Spanish. So the, the Spanish is still actually mainly Andean people with a relatively small number of ruling, if you'd like, Spanish people that are getting in control. But the Spanish are accumulating what they came for, the gold and silver, and they're calling the shots, I think, basically, are they? Uh, yes. Um, you can argue even that, that some of the, the, the uprisings you get against them are, are instigated by the Spaniards themselves uh, because whilst uh, these people are, are fighting them, they are not loyal subjects to the king and they can go for more gold and silver. Uh, 
so it, it's conflict is is something to the benefit of uh, of, of some of these these Spaniards. The Incas were sorely uh, depleted, 80 or 90%, and there were three reasons for this. Do you want to tell us? Yes, I mean, disease was a primary reason. Um, The Incas didn't have any immunity to European diseases, smallpox in particular, but also typhus and even measles, because they'd had no contact with them for millennia. And this meant, as you said, there's catastrophic decline in the population. Also, much of their livestock dies as well from overuse by the Spaniards, which apparently found llama brains a delicacy. Um, and also um, through disease as well, brought by um, sheep and other animals from the the old world. Um, So disease was a major factor. Also exploitation, the Spanish... um, What about conversion, forced conversion? Mm The indigenous people are forced to convert to Catholicism and this is a problem because um, Christianity is a monotheistic religion whereas the Incas allowed people they conquered to retain their own um, deities, the Spanish didn't. So many are forced to, to adopt Catholicism as a religion and start worshipping their ancestors, stop worshipping their shrines. Are they, are they punished? Um, not initially but later on if they are seen to apostatize and to leave the Catholic religion. Finally, is there any hope of knowing any a great deal more about uh, the Inca, Bill? Um, I think we're continually expanding our knowledge of the Inca, um, partly through archaeology. Um, so we are investigating more and more areas, so particularly understanding what was happening um, well beyond the Inca and particularly what was happening before the Inca in order to understand the, the, the roots of the Andean civilization. Um, there are important things going on in terms of understanding how the Inca recording system, the quipus, the knotted strings, how they are being interpreted and understood. Um, there is more and more research going on into the things like the um, use of crops and the different... Um, and there are Inca ceremonies still with us in parts of South America. Now they, it, that continues to, to some extent. We haven't time to go there, I'm afraid. Maybe we will all go there another time. Thanks very much to Helen Coey, Frank Meadens and Bill Silla. Next week, the Mytilenean debate when the Athenians voted to kill all the men of Mytilene and then sped across the Aegean to stop that happening because they changed their minds. Thanks for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. <laughs> you were going to come in, Frank. Um, yeah, I don't know what I was going to say there, but I, I think one of the things that is, is worth uh, flagging up is that you don't have a trade system, an exchange economy like uh, like we uh, would understand. So any goods get exchanged based on who you are related to which works into this archipelago system. So you make an effort to have family living in different ecosystems where they have got access to different resources. And uh, you legitimately can lay claim to those resources from your relatives. That's not to say that you don't you know, have, have a complete absence of, of trade, uh, like uh, spondylus shell, for example, gets traded from coastal Ecuador and uh, presumably gold and silver get uh, exchanged in a uh, a more complex way than who you are related to. But, for example, you've got um, a shrine uh, near Lake Titicaca where the Inca places 48 different, or elements of 48 different ethnic groups so that that shrine has uh, easy access to a whole range of resources. One thing that's worth, uh, a couple of things that are worth adding to that. First is that there there is no currency in the Andes. There is no um, form of um, um, monetary exchange. Everything is done through reciprocity or some forms of barter and exchange and gift giving that happens at elite level. Um, so that's one of the reasons why the use of storage by the Inca state allowed them to have a very large level of interaction and control as they tax people with labour to produce goods that went into the storage that they could then manipulate to request other things from people. One of the ironies of all this is that although they didn't have currency, the silver that eventually came from Potosí becomes the kickstart of really the monetarization at a much greater level of the European economy and having a very significant effect on the development of capitalism and indeed the Industrial Revolution. 
mean, one thing I would emphasise as well is it's pretty catastrophic when the Spanish conquer the Incas and a lot of elements of their culture are severely tested, but quite a lot of them do survive. So if we think about religion, yes, people are forced to convert, but there's pretty clear evidence from well into the 17th and 18th centuries that indigenous traditions such as, for example, disinterring mummies or dead people who've been buried um, or for example worshipping um, the gods through sacrifices of llamas or um, guinea pigs which was the other main domesticated animal that continues and you end up with quite a sort of syncretic form of religion that incorporates both Christianity and pre-existing Andean beliefs um, this is illustrated really well by um, a picture that is in Cusco Cathedral um, which shows um, Jesus having the last supper and it's done by an, an artist named Marcos the Pater um, if you look at it initially it looks quite um, normal Jesus and his disciples are sat around a table but if you look closer Jesus is about to tuck into a roasted guinea pig which is not really what you'd expect and he's also drinking cheap beer and, and other items so this kind of mixture does continue um, one other quite nice um, element of the painting is that the disciple um, who is Judas Iscariot is supposed to have been painted with the facial features of Francisco Pizarro the conquistador so that's quite a good way of getting back at um, the conquistadors um, through, through painting is there any sense that mummies were used in battle? Um, you have... Uh, that, yes, is the easy, the easy answer to that. You have uh, uh, individual Incas who are not just represented by their mummies. You have got individual Incas who have multiples of themselves by being represented by rocks or statues that represented are... Represented well. Uh, in battle, in uh, negotiations with uh, so they take the stones dignitaries. along with them. Yes, and these are perceived as animated. They will have people going with them who will talk for the rock that represents the king. But uh, if a battle is for, fought by an Inca general, where you have a, an, an Inca representative, a Wauke they are known as accompanying this general in battle, then the end result of conquest is that it's seen as the Inca who has made the conquest, not the general. Do you have any idea about the do we have any idea of the life of the uh, the, the laborers, the the least advantaged? I mean they they just labor away day after day and that was that? Um, I think we do have quite a lot of information on that. Um, in some ways, archaeology is quite good at uh, looking at sort of domestic households and, and how they are working. One of the things that's quite interesting is, away from Cusco, how little material culture that we recognise as Inca we are finding in those households. So much of what seems to be daily life looks fairly similar, and yet we know from historic records that some of these people are the ones that are going and labouring on the fields, working with the military, building the structures in Cusco. Um, so some of their daily life continues as it was. Um, we know quite a lot about them. For instance, one of the things that, that comes out from some very nice work in, in um, um, Monoco is, is looking at changes in diet. And men end up with an increased element of maize in their diet. And one of the arguments is that this is because they are drinking more beer because they are being reciprocated for their work through festivals of beer while they are working um, so that we see some aspects of what the Inca are doing and using beer to manipulate the masses, if you like. What sort of... They had... They, they, their form of lasting communication was with, with string, not sin string. Can you say... We didn't say quite enough about no. that. I mean, yes, these are known as kipu, um, and essentially they are pieces of string made of cotton or sometimes camelid fibre um, with little knots in them. And again, we can't entirely interpret these, although important work is being done in that field to try and decipher them. Um, what they certainly do tell us is they're used for things like censuses, so you can tell the number of people in a particular community. They conduct a census on the flocks as well, the llamas and alpacas, every November, so you've got it, registers of that, and also things like the amount of goods in the warehouse houses so they're very useful as a recording device um, and also they can be carried by these these messengers that we talked about going along the Inca Rose to communicate these message and there's a, there's a particular reader of the Cusco called the, Cus the, the Kipu Camayo if I can say that correctly um, who interprets these these devices as well um, but perhaps other people want to add further information on that. Well I suppose that we 
we know the numbering system within it. So the way that that works is a decimal system and, and it can record very high numbers in millions. Um, but what we don't know is the way that it recorded some of the more narrative information. And yet the Spanish recorded information from some of these. They got the Kipukumayos to read them. So we know that they had narrative material within them. But we as yet, all we know is the use of colour, the use of spin direction, the use of choice of, of, of yarn, of material that's used. These are used to record information, but how it was used is a thing that has been currently developed and debated. They were destroyed what? by a bishop's conference, though, weren't they? Some of them were, but some of them still survived, some and some of them have been, reco- have been recovered from archaeological context, which mm. is helping us hugely, because it then particularly ones that have been recovered from storehouses, we can then begin to say what, how they might relate to what is in the stores. One of the things that they have worked out is that as you have the, the, the horizontal string from which the vertical strings hang, you have categories of material being represented by the, the various uh, vertical strings and quantities by the various knots hanging down so you could relatively easily use this to say we have transported x amounts of maize from a to b we talked about them liking to negotiate but <clears throat> they could be very savage we're told also and and one thing that came up was that they the skins of their enemies were used as drums that is there anything in that um, yes, I mean we we get sort of chroniclers saying that 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 is 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 what happened. They were certainly savage. I, th- I think they, in in terms of the fact that they would meet out violence against people that were attacking them, um, um, or or not obeying them. One of the differences, if you like, between the warfares of the Andes and the warfare of the Spanish was that it was about sort of stone and cloth. So actually people protected themselves with clothing, but they also used cloth to make slings and throw stones at people. And then they hit people on the head with clubs of stone and they're pointed star-shaped things that would really sort of break your skull. Um, the, so the, one of the differences there is the Spanish meeting that with metal um, swords and metal armament, um, which actually was able to cut through some of the cloth armament and things like that. So the, that meeting of things. But yes, the Inca were perfectly happy to use violence if they thought it was appropriate and um, indeed one of the ways that people became powerful as warriors were to be successful in warfare and kill people. And we do know that in the, the campaign um, organised by Juana Capac to conquer the people in what's now Ecuador, um, a large number were massacred in a lake that's now called Yagua Cocha, which means lake of blood because apparently so much blood was spilt that it turned the lake red. Um, so there's certainly evidence of violence, although also negotiation. Well, that's a very good point to end on. I think our producer's coming in anyway. Tea or coffee? Uh, I have tea, thank you very much. Uh, I'll have tea, yes, please. Thank you you very much. Coffee for me, if that's possible. In Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson. I'm Simon Mundy, host of Don't Tell Me The Score, the podcast that uses sport to explore life's bigger questions, covering topics like resilience, tribalism and fear with people like this. We keep talking about fear and to me I always want to bring it back to are you actually in danger? That's Alex Honnold, star of the Oscar-winning film Free Solo, in which he climbed a 3,000-foot sheer cliff without ropes. And so, I mean, a lot of those you know, social anxieties things, and certainly I've had a lot of issues with talking to attractive people in my life. I'm like, oh no, like I could never do that. And it certainly feels like you're going to die, but realistically you're not going to die. And that's all practice too. Have a listen to Don't Tell Me The Score, full of useful everyday tips from incredible people on BBC Sounds.